No, that's not right, Ben. I'm you, you're me. Can we, we trick the listeners? Yeah, just bold. There's a lot of them too, isn't there, Paul? Well, speaking of listeners, OMG, you guys, you you shouldn't. You really shouldn't have. Loads of listeners, Ben. So many listeners. What, 10, 12, 15? No, mate. This Don Bananas, uh, the Emperor podcast, and uh, my plan, my, my dream for this podcast was, was to stay small. Um, I was... I was Sort of planning on on it being a not for profit, like like so many of our other sort of endeavours that we've done down the years. But it seems that the people have spoken, or rather, listened, and we've spoken, and they listened. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm the same. I don't want the popularity to sort of get in the way of our um, you know opinionated views. We don't want to. We don't want commercial sort of judgments clouding our own views. But I mean, with six thousand people want to listen, what, what can you do, Paul? You've got to you've got to keep speaking. Yeah, and you've got to try and sell them beer or sort of CBD oil or sporting goods or anything like that, which is... Uh, betting. Betting's good. Betting's yeah. great. Yeah, betting to be encouraged. Um, And lots of people getting in touch as well. Ben, we've uh, we've been down in Portugal doing a couple of surf broadcasts the last two weeks. Um, we had an Empora podcast super fan actually messaging via the, the YouTube stream, live stream on YouTube. Um, getting in touch about the armrest etiquette bants from uh, one of your one of your little riffs about the the middle the middle seat armrest. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, they're getting us from all sort of all angles, aren't they? All, all platforms, all times. Don't yeah, don't want to get too popular. It's like it's, it's a fine line, isn't it? But you know, we, we think like we're approaching it. So I mean, like I, Def Leppard's fourth album. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you know, I'm. I'm I'm wanting to listen, but maybe think about it first. You don't have to. Like we, we don't need you. We, we'd like you, but we don't need you, listener. So you know, think about how much you really want to be part of this. What's going on news-wise, Monday? You're based in London town. Um, were you at the Extinction Rebellion? Did you superglue yourself to Waterloo Bridge? I'm actually right now. Um, I've got my I've gaffer tapes my body to the right, the little. Um, um, Big Bang clock, and um, I've been circulating on that uh, clock now for the last week, and uh, yeah, it's going quite well. No, Paul, I um, I didn't get involved. I was away, unfortunately, but I'm wholeheartedly support all their endeavours, and um, yeah, a few people got late for work, but as a whole, this sort of town got behind them. Most people I sort of spoke to, obviously, I don't go around speaking to. City bankers and people that were disrupted at the stock exchange. Wanker! Wanker! But most people thought someone's doing something, um, and I really think it was a real sea change, a real radical sort of shift in perception of it all. So yeah, I'm, I'm fucking all the way behind the extension rebellion. What else has been going on Monday? What news have you got for us? On that note, Paul, it's made me rethink my um, carbon footprint. Um, I'm about to embark on a. I mean, covering some pretty important stuff on um, on surfing, uh, and I'm going to Zarouts and then Bali and then West Australia and then Sydney. And uh, yeah, I was thinking well, that's that's not mm. good. I mean, it's a work trip, of course it is, but a potential pretty incredible trip of a lifetime, as my wife calls it, a gap year. It's not. It's a professional endeavour. Um, but it, it, you know, the extension rebellion made me think about you know about that and how um, 
you know, what can I do to, to, to offset my, my footprint? We might come chat about that a little bit later on. What do you got news? What, what's, what's happening down there in the lovely Bay of Biscay, Paul? Uh, bad news. A couple of, couple of people, a couple of dead bodies washed up last week. Two, two drownings, tragically, at sea. Um, one guy, pretty experienced um, waterman, surfer, out on an outrigger canoe with, with three others, all in sort of one-man outrigger canoes, or pirogs, as they're, they're known here. Big southerly blew up last week. That was that happened down the other side of the river down there in Anglet, and he, he was found up here at Les Estagnes, and at the same beach, in the same 24 hours, a, a kite surfer drowned as well, tragically. So the ocean is dangerous this time of year, especially in spring. You can get pretty fierce winds, and the water's still pretty cold. So um, be careful, everyone, around the sea, as usual, would be the message. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I've been watching Netflix, Bundy. Um, <laughs> Start like you. Yeah, uh, Losers, though, if you've seen that series, it's pretty awesome. Um, I have. I've seen some. I haven't seen them all. I saw the, um, uh, the golfer Jean, Jean Vanderbilt. Yeah, there's a couple in there for action, adventure, sports enthusiasts. There's a really good one about the Iditarod, which is the Alaskan um, sort of husky sled sort of endurance challenge, which is really impressive. And about one woman's sort of struggle to become, become the first first woman to, to win it and sort of basically like an attempted murder on her during the course in the middle of the night it, it goes all through the night um, and there's a brilliant one about Mauro Prosperi who's the Italian guy who was doing the Marathon de Sab the ultra marathon in the Sahara and got lost basically for nine days in the Sahara had to drink bat's blood and his own pee pee and tried to kill himself but he was so dehydrated his blood clotted and he wouldn't bleed properly he slit his wrist but he, he couldn't die that's how sort of dehydrated he was so anyway losers awesome series on netflix was that the one i think mauro prosperi that his wife uh still hasn't taken that whole sort of incident very well she's, she's still a bit upset with his behavior it was the 94 marathon day seven she's still really pissed off. i mean she's his ex-wife now but even the separation hasn't hasn't sort of been a soothing tonic for her. She's still really pissed off with him about the whole about the whole sorry episode. The whole bad blood drinking thing. Um, yeah, getting away from drinking blood and just, just talking about ingesting things. Any news on any any microdosing news, uh, Ben, or anyone that you know has been experimenting with it? Yeah, I've been thinking about it. A um, couple of my more, for a friend. Uh, Are you asking for a friend or? <laughs> Like, well, yeah, my mate, yeah, the house mate. Let's let's call him out. He's uh, he's an advocate. Uh, he, he's a little bit of a left field thinker, which I like. Uh, and he's been advocating that that he's on the mushrooms, only tiny, tiny little doses. Um, it's been a bit of a um, uh, well, it's called a sort of um, a life hack. It all started in Silicon Valley. A lot of the movers and shakers and all that in the Silicon Valley have been using it for years, actually. So it's actually been only been tested the last five years, obviously. Um, macro dosing in the 60s and 70s and it went on and it was a way of obviously opening the, the doors of perception but the problem was that is it can often blow your hinges right off. My brain's capsizing, I'm gonna fuck my brain. Find your neutral space, you got a rush, it will pass. <laughs> and they reckon that they reckon just by having a tiny regulated um, piece every day you become more open, well, this is what my mate Steve reckons, you become more open, more aware, uh, you, you put yourself not so much at the heart of the conversation, but more reach out to people. And, um, you know, it's creative. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about sort of, yeah, I think micro doses might be the future, Paul. Well, might get me out of this 
sort of slump I'm in. Well, it, I mean, if your friend that you're asking for does does get into it, maybe he can you know come back on a future show and let us know. You, this is your friend that I'm talking about, the one you're asking for. Yeah, I mean, even if I was on it right now, you probably wouldn't know because it's such a micro dose. But um, yeah, I can, I can, I'd, yeah, I can guinea pig. I mean, if it's if it's for the uh, and poorer podcast fans, then I'm willing to to guinea pig away for sure. Crack on. Oh, oh, well, actually, not not crack. Obviously, it's it's mushrooms and LSD and things like that, right? I don't know much about crack, but I'm, I, I don't think it lends itself to micro dosing. No, no. Time now to look at some yeah, 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 no, no, no's. What's floated your boat and what's sort of sunken your fair ship? Ben, tell us about Deirdre Wallenick Hunnell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, Deirdre, good old Deirdre. She is actually the mother of um, Alex Hunnell, the famous uh, rock climber of the Free Solo um, movie, which you know has probably captivated the world and which we've talked about probably too much on this podcast, but it's such a brilliant show. Um, yeah, she's she's an amazing woman. She she's sort of let let the world know that recently she didn't even know that um, her son Alex was going to go and do that free climb. She went for a hike with him the day before. He didn't even mention it. He just said he was um, going off to bed early um, to get some rest because he had a big day the next day, and uh, she had to look on with everyone else as he as he um, ascended that that rock with just a um, some shoes and a, and a bag of powder. But yeah, uh, since then she sort of. Um, Sort of got sort of more into it. She's always been an active lady, but into climbing and hiking. But she probably got into it, and um, just recently she became the first or uh, the oldest woman uh, to climb El Cap. Age sixty six, took thirteen hours. She went up with her son, as you would do, and um, yeah, up the lurking fear um, route. Which I mean, that sort of says it all, really. You're, you're not even told if you're going up a, a climb called the lurking fear. Sixty six. Went out with the sun. I don't know, just really good mum efforts. We all love our mums, but um, yeah, I, I couldn't see my old girl Viv climbing that that thing, and um, she did, and she's obviously in the record book. So good on the Honolds, taking the world by storm. Yeah, without meaning to get weird, but imagine, um, <laughs> imagine Cliff Young, who from from my podcast, the Mastermind coming up month two. Uh, imagine Cliff Young and um, Deirdre Wallowick Honold sort of getting it on. Oh, what a imagine, dream team. Imagine the sort of endurance athlete that they could create. <laughs> yeah. Imagine the, um, the coupling process might take four years. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Paul, do you want to tell us about the Natural Navigator? Oh, I'd love to tell you why the Natural Navigator, Tristan Gooley, makes me go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I bought one of his books uh, a few years ago, sort of by mistake. It's The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs. Um, I just sort of bought it by accident at a second-hand bookshop. Um, he's got some other books, How to Read Water, a bunch of really good books, all about kind of navigating using the sort of the sort of plants and the stars and the sort of weather and the elements around you. And then recently I was listening to a podcast, Daniel Vitalis' podcast, Rewild Yourself, which is which is a pretty good podcast. Um, I did put it on in the car over Christmas and Heidi made me turn it off. Uh, the intro was quite long and she doesn't share my passion for podcasts. But, you know, few people do. Anyway, Ben, back to Tristan. Um, he's led expeditions in five continents. He's climbed mountains in Europe, Africa and Asia. He's sailed small boats across oceans, piloted small aircraft to the Africa and the Arctic. And he's studied the methods of the Tuareg, the Bedouin, the Dayak in some of the remotest regions on Earth. This is obviously just straight off his website. But um, he's the only living person to have flown solo and sailed single-handed across the Atlantic. Um, he's also vice chairman of, of Trail Finders, the 
travel company, which is, makes the name extremely sort of appropriate. <laughs> but basically, what I like about Tristan, um, it's, you know, it's, it's got these cool things about when you're out, how to know kind of which way you're going and find home, etc. But he honed his skills, you know, in basically in sort of southern England. You know, he used to go on holiday to the Isle of Wight. Um, it's not like he grew up in some sort of isolated sort of precipice in the Yukon Territory. or He just sort of comes from sort of south, relatively ungnarly terrain um, in southeast England. I know uh, Mears, Ray Mears had sort of similar kind of humble beginnings. We have no idea where we are and there might be a storm coming in. We're dead meat. This isn't the Matterhorn, Jeremy. This is southern England. Nobody dies in southern England. Interesting dude, good books and... Um, Nice to sort of get away from all the electronic equipment and the, the sat-navs and the GPSs and just basically look at the way a bumblebee's flying or how a squirrel runs and then you can tell which way it is to the pub or chip shop. Tristan Gooley. Very handy. Other things that have made you go... Tell us about DIY foils. I mean, one of the benefits of, of our work is that we get to talk to interesting people from all around the world in the adventure sports world and, and write about it and you come across you go down some sort of some rabbit holes and i recently had the uh, pleasure of speaking to a man called james fior from clearwater foils and what, what james does is he he makes uh diy kits uh, for foils now you've probably seen the you know the, the foil boards are taking over the world you might not agree with them but by all accounts that um you know, it's an amazing thing once you're up and riding on one. Uh, the problem is, is that they tend to be very expensive. Uh, I think you know, it's a minimum sort of thousand sort of US dollars or a thousand euros is probably about the minimum. But old James, about five years ago, he saw he saw a foil board on YouTube and thought it was cool. Uh, he was still in high school at the time. He he'd uh, been a bit of a boat builder in his time and had always sailed boats. And he just set about uh, making his own, and he made a few on it by himself, and then. Other people wanted to do them, um, and he found out that um, the process was relatively simple in terms of wood, but um, it was the fiberglass and it was a real pain in the ass. So what he's done, he set up a, uh, a DIY sort of kit where he makes the components just out of, out of balsa wood, and then um, you buy them and you ship them off and you assemble them yourself. So there's a bit of a DIY kind of aspect. You're building your own foil and then you get a glass. Um, I mean, that whole thing can be done for around 500 sort of US. And since he sort of started this little site, it's taken off and he ships them all around the world. They're all his own sort of templates and designs, totally self-made. Um, so instead of buying some some whole kit, you're buying, you know, a pretty cool, pretty cool sort of design. You're making it yourself. And then I'd imagine that when you're up foiling, uh, it would feel even better knowing that you've sort of had a, a big role uh, in the making of it. So, um, yeah, I just thought it was bit of entrepreneurship, a bit of good old-fashioned DIY. And, uh, yeah, James, James of Clearwater Foils, I'd, I'd go check it out. I thought it was good, Paul. Yeah, I guess it's kind of tackling one of the big questions is would, would you rather have the sort of the classic sort of metal foil or carbon one sort of slice the top of your skull off as they sort of go past you in the surf or would you rather just be sort of wounded by the, by the balsa, sort of balsa supply version and sort of just bleed out slightly more slowly, sort of halfway back to shore. Good, yeah, good topic. Foiling, good, good sport. Paul, what about the Wheels and Waves Festival that makes you go... Oh, man. I mean, what isn't to love about the huge gathering of the motorcycle tribe down here in Beer, it's southwest France in early June, Ben. 
It's motorbikes fused with sort of surf and skate culture. And I thought this was sort of fading away, kind of going out of fashion a bit. Just seems to be getting bigger, going from strength to strength. Uh, I've got mates coming over from like California for it this year, who instantly asked to come and stay with me. I said no. Um, crew coming from England that I see every year. And the skate, this the motorbike thing just seems to go... From strength to strength, I mean, look at, you know, the world of skating. You've got sort of pro skaters like Chris Cole, uh, two-time skater of the year winner, and Steve Caballero, one of the sort of OG legends. They're really into, they're really into motorbikes. There's loads of surfers into that sort of vintage bike scene. Personally, I've never been that into the metal two-wheel death horse. Um, I've always thought all those dudes sort of in leathers on those massive Kawasaki's or whatever were basically... All the kids at school who are sort of last to get picked in PE. Um, or I'd make other disparaging remarks about the size of their, you know, gentleman's agreement. But it's no longer the thing I'd probably say because the Empora pod is sort of courting commercial sponsorship. And we've been asked to, well, we've been told we can swear, but to cut down on sexual swear words. But yeah, um, that's all happening on down here, mate. Beer it's, you might even be coming down. Um... And you know what? Like you mentioned, Extinction Rebellion, climate change, fuck it. Just fill up your really loud, stinking, guzzling, rev the shit out of it. Uh, obviously, just fit one person on or maybe two, so everyone literally needs their own engine. It's not even like one engine can power a few of you. Um, wear loads of leather. I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with animal agriculture, is there? So, brilliant. Come to Beer It's. This is exactly what we need. Noise yeah. and fumes. Yeah, well, I lived in Brits for three or four years there, and that was the wheels. And I saw the wheels and waste festival sort of start up from a kind of small gatherings of, um, yeah, sort of peak hipster to, um, yeah, to, and it's grown and grown. I actually recently, it's funny you mentioned I was with a with my mate Steve, <laughs> Steve of the micro dosing uh, fame, and uh, we he's a photographer, and we I'm pitching a story where we yeah, we leave from London. At least we got so that would be two people using one engine, which is a bit better. Um, and we kind of go sort of full easy rider style, me being the um, sort of uh, Jack Nicholson um, sort of figure on the back with the uh, gridiron helmet, um, and Steve more being the Captain America kind of guy in the front. Are you when you we say t- when you say pitching? Are you thinking Time Magazine or or is it is it the Atlantic? Where 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 you were? Uh, you well, I always go to the New York New Yorker first, right. and then if I get the first writer reply. Um, down, yeah, you know, Sports Illustrated, The Times, uh, and then hopefully it'll end up as an Empora piece. So, um, yeah, mate, Wheels and Ways Festival, it, as you say, environmentally uh, dodgy, but Jesus Christ, it's a whole lot of fun. Well, Ben, not everything can make you sort of nod your head up and down in a north-south movement. Some of it, some stuff makes you want to move it side to side, east to west. And I believe we've had some correspondence mainly about your attitude on some of the things you've said on this podcast about Sky Brown that's made you go. No, no, no. We've got some correspondence in. Um, Alan Wally Hoskins. Uh, he says, loved the podcast, lads, really enjoying it. But thought Monday was particularly harsh on the young UK skateboarder Sky Brown, a grown man having a crack at a 10-year-old girl. He said it reminded him a bit of those sort of far-right anti-eco-fascists that are attacking uh, the Swedish activist Greta Thunberg for having the gall to try and save the planet. <laughs> um, and I thought that was quite a good point from uh, Alan Wally Hoskins. And I 
I felt a bit bad. And then just after I'd read um, Alan's uh, correspondence, I found out that uh, Sky Brown, she just won the gold at her first national competition uh, with victory in the Women's Park at the UK Skateboard Championships in Salford. Um, and she's on the way to very probably being the British, British youngest summer Olympian at next year's Tokyo Games. Um, so, yeah, it just gave me sort of a pause to you know, maybe think about your actions and things that are sprout off on, online or, or on a podcast form. Um, but when Alan puts it in perspective like that, I, I, felt, I felt a little, a little bit chastened. I, I felt a bit bad for myself. Um, anyway, we'll see when she's fucking 16, though, how good she goes. But anyway, yeah, I, 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 I apologise. Uh, I'm now sort of I'm on time, I'm on team Sky Brown. I'm I'm sort of going all, all in. I hope she goes all the way in uh, in Tokyo next year. No, no. Before, I mean, speaking of bad news, you want to you want to have a little shout out to Jake Phelps, one of the legends of skateboarding. Yeah, Jake Phelps, of course, the Thrash Magazine fame. R.I.P. Passed away back in March. It's around about the same time we we were recording the last pod. It didn't quite make it on there. It's going back a little way now, five weeks or so. Twenty eight years at Thrasher, basically half his life. Um, and I was always impressed with sort of everything about him, really. Uh, this general sort of attitude, the controversy. Um, I like the way he kind of was sort of alleged to have picked the whole Skater of the Year thing, which is the only real meaningful kind of award that exists in skateboarding. Obviously, there isn't like a, not like a tour like we have in surfing and a world champ. It's basically sort of, you know, allegedly that was just sort of him. You know, it wasn't, they weren't like ballots going out to sort of hundreds of skateboarding professionals. Um, but no, I liked, I liked his whole uh, longevity mainly. And you quite often get people in the media who sort of attach themselves to a movement or a kind of a group, don't you? Often it's like a, maybe someone that's friends with, with a group of pros and then, and then they sort of turn pro and he becomes the sort of documenter of them or she, a filmmaker, a photographer, a writer. But he, he sort of managed to sort of keep himself relevant through generations um, he used to ban skaters he didn't like from the magazine. Um, and I just sort of admired the way he didn't mind sort of calling out his own sort of audience. Um, I remember I got a copy from sort of the early 2000s and one of the cover lines was about a tour that I can't remember which skateboard, skate brand it was. It was someone's like Midwest and the, the cover line is like whatever brand Midwest tour. And the sort of subline underneath was a sea of whack fedoras and he was basically dissing that was a sort of peak sort of fedora hat sort of years and he was just basically dissing sort of what everyone was wearing uh, on the cover of the magazine which I personally took quite a bit of inspiration from as, as a magazine editor he died how did he die it's not been uh, sort of really made official there's, there's a bit of speculation he had quite a bad slam in 2017 and hit his head and there's a bit of speculation that it's, it's complications due to that but his, his uncle basically said he, he, he passed away quickly um yeah, we passed it quickly. So we, we don't really know. It's not been made public. Um, but yeah, rest in peace, Jake Phelps. No, no. Then other things that have made you go, no, no. Carbon, apparently, is getting you down a bit at the moment, Ben, as as with many, many young people like, like yourself. Yeah. Obviously, there's a carbon issue. We're well aware of it. Um, and, you know, we talked about in the, in the intro a bit about the old extension rebellion and, and how they're changing things and changing mindsets and yeah my my flights i mean we were uh, well still are some of the most esteemed surf and adventure sports journalists um in the wide sort of western world so we've done our fair share of flying um what do you do we need we need a response um we need to do individual action um and yeah i i 
I'm down with that, and so I've been looking a bit into it. So what is bad is my carbon footprint, but what is good? You suck. Uh, you you really yeah, you're you're an I awful, really a terrible person. Yeah. But on the Empora um, website uh, this month, there was a really good article um, about carbon offsetting. Um, I had uh, an interview with Kai Landwehr from My Climate, and that's a non-profit climate protection organisation that's based in Switzerland, but it's, it's one of the world's leading providers of voluntary carbon offsetting. Um, you know, so this is a way, I know it's got issues, there is various sort of um, yeah. problems with this, which I'm no doubt, Paul, you might want to eliminate me on, but, you know, his point being that they are offering, um, you know, some methodology uh, about their schemes, and that could be from the introduction of cooking stoves in, to reduce deforestation in, like, Kenya and Rwanda to... Um, you know, tree planting in, in Nicaragua. And there's all sorts of things that, that they're doing that you obviously pay your money um, and then that goes to those programs that are, are offsetting carbon. So, you know, I'll just check out that article in Empora. It gives a good overview of what, what's available and what you can do. It might not be absolutely bulletproof uh, in terms of, of doing it, but I think it's, it's something we should investigate. Paul, I suppose you've got it. Uh, I'd be surprised if you don't have a view on this, Paul. Um, yeah. The, the traditional backlash against that is it's a sort of a licence to pollute, particularly for the sort of wealthy who can afford it. Go, oh, well, I'll just fucking fly to Cancun for go and have a margarita. But it's all right, I'll pay someone to supposedly either invest in some green businesses. And, and there, there was a bit of sort of shady stuff around it going back in the 2000s. But yeah, um, I think even that particular company that you that organization you mentioned that the sort of first part of their mission statement was actually just to avoid the emission first of all and that, that was part of their mission yeah. um so you know like offsetting would be secondary to just not emitting the carbon in the first place but yeah ben i think you do need to change your ways uh you are i'm concerned about you flying i've pretty much just retired from long-haul travel altogether um have turned down a couple of work-related things due to flying and well you're going off gallivanting around the world i'm sailing in cornwall mate just on wind power so you know maybe you should look at my shining example <laughs> yeah you're getting to cornwall how to live your life uh easy jet no no speaking of um you know long haul flights we actually did get a bit of correspondence we mentioned that in the uh, in the intro i think about uh guys getting in contact and, and girls from all platforms but yeah he actually got in touch about the uh, armrest etiquette and he had a solution, Paul. Yeah, we did get a comment in from uh, an Emperor Podcast super fan, Patrick Potoski. He said, if you sit in the middle, you get both armrests, left and right. He said, no one chooses to sit in the middle. You've kind of, you know, been dealt sort of a bit of bad luck in terms of the seating plan. And um, you get both. So we put window seat, if it's on the left, for example, gets the left one against the, sort of the fuselage of the plane. But the, the two that are adjoining, that's the person in the middle. Good point, well made. Paul. Um, I heard you've um, got a bit of a bone to pick with mountain biking. Um, what, what, what's wrong with mountain biking, Paul? Well, you know what? It's not the sport itself that's made me go. No, no, no. no, no. Uh, just some of the cocks that do it. Um, it's just a bit of an issue I've got um, on a little walk I do near home. There's a little river called the Budigo. It goes through some forest. I walk there with my dog uh, on my own or with my kids. Uh, speaking of kids, the, the youngest one, he, he's two. And just to sort of give you a, an idea of the sort of nature of the path in terms of how rugged the terrain is, he, he does that walk in flip-flops. He's two years old. He can't, he can't talk yet. So, yeah, 
basically it's sort of flat and mellow and unmountainy so that a two-year-old can walk at it. And and what you get is, you know, usually on Sundays or, or, or bank holidays, a sort of procession, a peloton of belens in sort of thousands of euros worth of gear of carbon and fucking graphite, whatever, titanium and lycra. Kind of like we have to get out of the way and let them go past. They've got a gear ratio so low that you could fucking ride vertically up the Eiffel Tower sort of transitions on it. Like, it's just ridiculous. And, like, when you see them afterwards, to get back into town, you have to sort of go along a bike path along the road. The faces, that they look like they've just tackled the Darien Gap as they come back, like they're just returning from battle. And I just, yeah, my problem with it, you just, it's too much gear, lads and girls. You, you don't need that much stuff. Sometimes I do it on, on my bike. Um, I do it on one of those sort of, sort of granny shopping bikes that, that you buy from the supermarket for about 100 euros. It's got, you know, the one I do it on, it, it's got, it's a lady's bike, so it's got the sort of, the little crossbar thing is down below, so your skirt can go there. It's got a wicker basket attached to the handlebars. You can't even take it off. I do it in that. You don't need and you often do it naked. Yeah, you you don't need a mountain bike, and you don't need all that stuff. You don't need that sort of shitty air as if you're doing something rad like riding across fucking Kilimanjaro, your bell ends. And I just think mountain biking could take a little bit of inspiration from some of the other sports, like like angling, like like fishing, which basically there's sort of a movement in fishing for the last few years about ultra light gear. ULG, you use the sort of lightest gear possible um, to tackle the task, the sort of smallest rod, the thinnest line, like the smallest lures. And it's all about basically, you know, honing your skill set and sort of using your experience. And, you know, it'd be easier to do it with bigger stuff, but that isn't sort of the challenge. And I think we weekend mountain bikers could um, could take a leaf out of fishing's book. Um, and don't even fucking get me started on the ones with battery with fucking engines in. <laughs> with fucking batteries in oh my god the e-fat bikes that have essentially sort of killed the sort of forest surfing experience in southwest france um i don't want to get started on that actually ben it's just just gonna get annoyed no. but yeah. yeah don't don't start on that no good point well made um i mean it is our probably our target and poor audience that you're just uh dissing but you know hey ho uh, point well that's well, I, that's why I particularly i'd like to appeal to them you know do do you really if you go along a path and there are toddlers on it maybe th- that path isn't really a sort of a challenge enough for your bike maybe you need to go somewhere a little bit more nah nah just a thought just a thought Empora podcast once the wind's in your face you see the view of the waves and you're just barely above them going through just the rush right there Maybe those butterflies, like when you're a little kid, gonna jump off a high rock or something. My earliest memory of surfing, my dad pushed me on the little white water. I stood up, and then it, right as it would hit the sand, I would slide up the beach. It all started with his grandfather riding big waves that had never been ridden before. Nathan learned how to surf and talk and walk and skateboard all at the same time. But his real deal was jumping. Joining us down the line from LA, very happy to say Michael Oblowitz, who is an acclaimed director. He's made feature films with the likes of Val Kilmer and Steven Seagal. He's made music videos with the likes of Bowie and Clapton. 
and he made a bit of a mark in the surf back in 2010 with Sea of Darkness, a film which never quite made it to general release, which we might touch upon. And at the moment, he's got a film called Heavy Water with Red Bull Media House that is just premiered in Newport Beach Film Festival about Nathan Fletcher. And welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, let's let's talk about Heavy Water and um, get a little bit caught up on that. So you've just you just been screening the movie in in Newport Beach. Yeah, well, it, we we tested it out in a couple of film festivals along the way. Um, I guess, like all the surfing movies I've done, which this would be the, the third, although the signing one hasn't been released yet, but they somehow managed to get. Uh, admired in some kind of controversy along the way. I'm not sure how <laughs> it happens because I'm really always trying to steer clear of it. But um, but I do tend to take a very like sociological and psychological um, approach to the subject matter. You know, like uh, I'm more of a surfing anthropologist than the guy who's making surf porn. You know, you know what I mean. Like I'm not really sure. that, that concerned with a series of, of, of hectically fast-cut, beautiful, spackled pictures of guys busting airs. I mean, I'd rather watch that live on the WSL podcast, you know, and see it happening in front of my face at Rocky Point. Uh, but when I'm making these movies, they, they really are like cultural surveys for me because the, the, the surfing world at its core, and by that I mean the North Shore and Indonesia, and uh, San Clemente, places like that where it's really been engaged for many, many years, right, has, uh, has a lot of inflections. There's a lot going on there. And certainly for most of its uh, short lifespan, surfing as a sport has not been financially well endowed by, the, uh, by our culture at large, right? So there's been all sorts of, ways that surfers have had to finance their uh, passion of the years. And it's made for a, a very eccentric group of, of people. And, you know, at the forefront of that eccentric, eccentric group of people are the Fletcher family from uh, originally from San Clemente. Nathan's uh, dad is Herbie Fletcher, who's certainly one of the greatest progressive surfers uh, in the history of surfing, he was a, a legendary longboarder during the Makaha era in the 19, late 50s and early 60s. And then he moved to the North Shore and was one of the first innovators riding very short, skinny boards of pipeline. He was very famous. He was also, uh, you know, famous for skateboarding pools back before anybody had done it. And he was the guy that introduced the jet ski into surfing, you know, in, uh, 1981, he was, uh, he was surfing Wyomere Bay, massive pipeline on a, on a tiny little jet ski. Jet skis were very different back in those days. It was skinny and small and agile and used for tricks. And he took them out into the outer reefs and he, the very first recorded toe in is, is, uh, Herbie Fletcher and Martin Potter at um, Third Reef Pipeline, I think in 1982 or three or somewhere around there. After which Herbie was towing his sons, uh, Christian and Nathan. Um, his wife 
Debbie Fletcher is the daughter of Walter Hoffman. Walter and Flippy Hoffman, uh, Herbie's father-in-law and Nathan's grandparents, introduced the Hawaiian print to the world. They had a small uh, textile factory in downtown L.A. I think they were like Jewish-German immigrants to uh, L.A. back in the turn of the century, in the 20th century. But they were also uh, lived on the beach in uh, in uh, Redondo Beach around there somewhere, Redondo, Sacramento. And uh, they, they, they'd become involved in the nascent sport of surfing. You know, they were uh, massive in innovators. Uh, Walter and Flippy Hoffman uh, moved to Hawaii in the late 1930s, early 40s, where they hooked up with um, George Dowding and Walter for Wally Froiseth and uh, uh, you know all the other great uh, big wave riders of that era and uh, and they, they were the, the first to surf massive uh, outer reef uh, Makaha uh, Sunset Beach and later on the outer reefs on the North Shore yeah so they were real innovators at that point in time and they were innovators in surfboard design and uh, they were at the forefront of surfing. So Nathan Fletcher was born into a pretty legendary family. And in many respects, the most legendary member of that family is Nathan's elder brother, Christian. And I think it's quite um, truthful to say that without Christian Fletcher, we would not have uh, Gabriel Medina or, or Felipe Toledo or any of the great aerial surfers of the modern era. Uh, because Christian era, the Christian Fletcher, I mean, there are a lot of people who lay claim to introducing aerial surfing into surfing. But I think it's historically accurate to say that of all the aerial surfers of the um, 80s, Christian Fletcher was not only the, the first to really take it to its full potential, but also the first to win an ASP competition at Trestles busting two aerials in a wave. Remember when Toledo did that at J-Bay, hmm. right? It was, Christian Fletcher did that in 1989 at Trestles on a beautiful surf. The only difference was Sean Thompson and all the boys applauded Toledo for his efforts at J-Bay. But when Christian Fletcher won for busting aerials at, um, at Trestles, he was kicked out of the ASP. Remember, it was the ASP, not the WSL at that point in time, the governing body of, of professional surfing. And uh, a lot of the surfers protested that what Christian Fletcher was doing was not surfing. It was tricks or something. And uh, even though Christian and Nathan had grown up in pipeline on the beach and could surf big barrels of pipeline as good as anybody,
and Jay was really working on developing aerial maneuvers and skateboard and in surfing and Christian was younger and more agile and he took what he learned from Jay and really took it out there you know uh, and Nate, so Nathan was growing up in this environment with Christian Asoy and, and Fletcher and Jay Adams was his babysitter and the movie really the first third of the movie deals with that whole universe it's very much a movie about skating and surfing right so it's very contemporary in, in its in its uh in where it positions itself, right? Because, you know, Nathan became a leading exponent of aerial surfing as well at an early age. I guess Nathan's interesting for, well, one of the reasons, he was one of those first sort of true, like, crossover kind of athletes with, with skating and also with motocross. <laughs> he was involved in motocross and he was involved in snowboarding, skateboarding and surfing all simultaneously. And surfing was the one that offered him the most money, you know, that he was able to live and do everything he wanted to do in some ways i guess he was the first one of the first real soul surfers of the postmodernist era you know the david rastovich era but he's very different to rastovich and those kind of guys nathan's not a hippie you know he's much more of a punk rocker i mean that's that's why we get on that's why i related to sonny garcia that's why i related to nathan because I come out of the punk rock era, you know, that was my era. And uh, I was in uh, London at the 100 Club when the Sex Pistols played their first concert. I just dropped dodged the army from South Africa and I was living in London. That's where I was hanging out. So I think the Fletcher family, Sonny Garcia, even Martin Daly to, to a degree, they, they weren't hippies. They were tough guys who loved the sport, but were also very punk in their... Uh, in their uh, approach to it anyone that's seen I guess the trailer for the movie and there's kind of publicity around it would obviously have seen the the acid drop from the heli the the bomb drop is that something that when when you work with someone like Red Bull do they does there need to be like a, a stunt a, no, a challenge no, or a that, stunt no, or is that, that... so how, how this whole movie came about right so I'd met Nathan through uh my friend, the artist and filmmaker Julian Schnabel, the guy that did Basquiat, and he did that. He just did that Van Gogh movie with with uh, Willem Dafoe, that was nominated yeah. for the Academy Award. Yeah, uh, Julian's an old surfer too. So through Julian, I met the Fletcher family, and uh, when I done Sea of Darkness, um, they arranged a screening on the North Shore at the Ruka House back about the time you were there. I think that was the. Uh, party that was actually celebrating Nathan's historic ride at Chopu that by his own admission he was just lucky to die on and Nathan was really shook up it was only a month or two maybe three months after he'd had the ride and not even a year since Sion had drowned Mavericks while he and Nathan were surfing there he was pretty shook up and he was there with Bruce Irons because Andy had died recently too so they saw my movie and there was a kind of relationship there like an unspoken relationship but then I was off doing working with Sonny and Sonny's movie and I'd come back to the North Shore I had the cameras and I ran into Nathan and I said hey let's while, while we're at it and I got all this gear here why don't we start working on something with you and Red Bull was not involved with it at that time uh, it was a independent financier from New York living in LA a guy called Doug Kaplan he liked the idea, so he 
you know, we, we did the first interviews with Nathan, and Nathan did it on one condition. He said, um, I'll do this with you, but my dream is to do this bomb drop out of a chopper into an outer reef wave and make it. And if you can find a way to get that done, we can do the whole documentary. And I knew that I'd already had this relationship with Philippe Mondel and Red Bull from Sea of Doctors. And we discussed projects, but nothing materialized, but we'd become very good friends. And uh, Philippe said, well, let's see what you've got first. So me and my editor, Carter Slade, we cut, uh, we, we, we made a 90-minute version out of Nathan's stories of uh, him and Sion going to Mavericks and Andy dying and then Sion drowning and then Nathan and Bruce going off to surf massive uh, uh, Fiji cloud break, you know, there's red boards and then, then after that the two of them towed gigantic chopu and the movie was kind of a tribute to their fallen brothers to Andy and Sion and that's kind of how it ended, right? And uh, it created a massive amount of controversy because nobody on the North Shore apparently wanted to hear anything about Sion or whatever and I don't know, it was, it was kind of, I, I think because I'd done Sea of Darkness, they thought that everything I did was about drugs. And I was going to start telling stories about Sion and Andy and drugs. And, da, 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 and really, that was the furthest thing from my mind. That version, the first version, got submitted and accepted by the very prestigious San Sebastian Film Festival. Not the Surf Film Festival, the big yeah. San Sebastian Film Festival. Sure. And it played in front of a thousand people, and people loved it. It just got like really great accolades and things were written about it in Variety and everybody loved the movie. And Red Bull said, listen, we'll come on board now and we'll finance you doing the acid drop. So there was no prerequisite from Red Bull to do uh, an extreme stunt per se. We already had that idea. We just said, you know, I told Nathan, oh, sure, I'll get it financed. But really... I didn't know if I was going to get it financed or not. It was, a, it was a gamble, but I knew that the story was so good that I felt confident I could pull it off. Then, then we had to figure out how to do this goddamn acid drop. It wasn't, you know, I mean, the only time it had been tried before once was by Taj Barrow, and he went, he, he landed and it went right through his surfboard. Prior to that, there was a guy called Ace Cool. Yeah. Uh, in the 80s, Ace Cool had been. I used the helicopter to take him to an outer reef and gently deposit him in the surf, but he didn't jump from the chopper. You know, yeah, he did hang out from the chopper, and from that, Nathan got his inspiration, which was, you know, hang from the skins of the helicopter. And then, as 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 the as the, uh, the the pilot coasted over the top of a 20, 30 foot wave, Nathan would time it and and do this bomb drop, which he had learned from Danny Way. Christian Nassoy did the first bomb drop. He dropped from, a, from the roof of a garage into a homemade ramp in Venice or somewhere. With, and Jay was with him, right? The two of them had been working on it. So Nathan had seen them do shit like that when he was a kid. And then Danny Way did it from the chopper into a huge mega ramp. Yeah. And Nathan, meanwhile, had started paddling Mavericks and places like that. And he did that series of photos where he jumped off a cliff at Steve Lake. Yeah. 
but he, you know, he was putting it all together in his head, which nobody believed we could do. We had an uproar on the North Shore where we uh, started telling the local guys we were going to do this, you know. I mean, you know, we didn't want, you know, Eddie Rothman was, was like angry that we were going to crash a helicopter and phantoms in, the, in his backyard, you know what I mean? There was a lot of, because a lot of big-time water safety people thought it couldn't be done. But uh, Brian Kielan and Rusty Kielan and McCaw, they were sent in county down the only way to a guy that they know who could do it would be Nathan. And it took us a couple of years to get the crew together because a lot of the top water safety guys would work with us and we couldn't get a permit without water safety. We originally would try to work with Don Shea, the pilot from Maui, who'd worked with Laird. And he said, we weren't going about it the right way. And, you know, it was just like, it was a pig fucking a fucking barnyard, dude. I'm telling you, it was not easy to get done. And, uh, it, you know, plus with the controversy of having done the Scion thing, it was like, shit, all hell was breaking loose. And it, it was like, it was supposed to be an easy in and out kind of thing and get it done and then I could finish Sonny's movie. And in the end, it just sort of became like another crazy turn of the North Shore wheel, right? It's just how it is, I guess. But by the time we got to do it, it was nearly the end of the winter season. It was pouring with rain and lightning and thunder. It was insane. It was like 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 everything that could go wrong would go wrong kind of day. And, uh, I mean, there were some dicey moments. So one of the attempts, Nathan hit his head on the skin of the helicopter, and we thought he was done. It was like pretty fucking freaky shit, I'll tell you. But uh, the only prerequisite that Red Bull had was we're doing the jump. There has to be one camera that gets the jump all the way through from the initiation to the completion of the ride so that it was clear that it wasn't a bunch of special effects. Yeah. We had to show yeah. it was done real. And we got that with a GoPro on the helmet to rush Randall looking out the, the door, the side door of the helicopter ride room. So it's 100% real. There's no bullshit. He pulled it off. It took a lot to get it, and it's fucking dangerous. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> There's a great line that Nathan says, like he's standing on the beach and he's going, "Shit, if I get cheese grated, everybody's going down." Empora podcast. All right, Ben. Well, enough of the fun. It's time for things to get pretty serious. It's time for the tat-tat-tat, the quest of knowledge in the worlds of action, adventure, sports, or just anything else that's on wikipedia it's called podcaster mastermind you're the reigning champion you defeated my golden globe 68 yacht race with cliff young the australian sort of pension age ultramarathon runner um so you're on your second month on cliff i'm nominating a new topic i've chosen the life and times of john muir the sort of legendary sort of scottish american naturalist and sort of forefather of National parks and environmentalism. Um, would you like to give or receive first up, Ben? Uh, I would like to receive, as always. Okay, and should you win, what what track have you chosen? Um, build me up, Buttercup by the Foundations. Okay. So as as I mentioned, my topic is John Muir, and should I win on Muir? 
I've gone for the eight-piece sort of psychedelic jazz uh, ensemble, Archie Whitewater, and their absolute classic cross-country, which is, I think, very relevant for, for John Muir, personally, as well as a, an absolute banging tune. Uh, ben, you've chosen to receive. So, as is our custom, questions get a little bit tougher. Second time out, and it's five of the best on Cliff Young, starting now. Uh, the Daily Mirror, the Australian version of the Daily Mirror, ran with a cover splash, I've Had Enough, uh, when Cliff Young gave up during the Sydney to Melbourne Ultramarathon. Which year did that happen? Um, 1986. It's 89. That's six years after his first one. Crikey. No wonder he's giving up. Um... Okay, well, as we mentioned last time out, uh, there was a movie, a TV movie, uh, called Cliffy, about Cliff. came out in 2013. Who played the leading role? Who played Cliff in Cliffy? Oh. Um, I can see his face. He's a pretty well-known Australian actor. Um, Not well-known enough by the sounds of things, Sam. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, Kevin Harrington. Yes, is correct. Yeah, good old Kev. Is there not a, not a sort of house of the name over here? <laughs> no. That's, that's, that's weird. In late 1982, uh, Cliff tried to break Siegfried Ziggy Bauer's then world record for 1,000 miles of 11 days and 23 hours. The attempt took place in Colax Memorial Square. Where did Young train for that attempt? Uh, on his potato farm. It was in the Otway Ranges. Uh, Cape, o- Cape Otway, of course, is one of the capes, isn't it, down there in Victoria, the, the Great Ocean yeah, Road. Yeah, that's kind of like the start of the Great Ocean yeah. Road. That's the, the borderline of it that goes all the way down to Warrnambool and all that beautiful part of the world. Good road. Good road. Um, okay, Cliffy obviously clocked up quite a few Ks in his career, uh, even though he started at 61. How many Ks to the nearest thousand did he clock up in, in that esteemed and storied career? Oh, by official race Ks, obviously. Yeah. Um, 13,000. It's 20,000. Crikey. So you're one from... You're one from four. Um, last question. Bit, bit of a toughie. It's, it's testing your knowledge of on Cliff, but also just, you know. I'm a, I'm a dead Australian pensioner. Yeah, but also uh, Australian geography. So Cliff is famously from Beach Forest in, in Victoria. There's a memorial to him, which is a sort of a concrete gum boot, which for people that don't know, a gum boot is a sort of a classic Aussie kind of work boot. Um it's more of like a Wellington boot, actually. Okay, sure. It's more of a, more which, of a... which he raised, which he raised in at some stages. Um, he okay, and in the twenty sixteen census, what was the population of Beach Forest? <laughs> Eight. Is that your final answer? <laughs> yeah. It's eighty two. It's not bad. <laughs> That's it's not just bad. just one power of ten out. Um, but yeah, okay, so, yeah, I mean, they were, admittedly, they were, they were tougher, they were stiffer questions for you, Ben. Yeah, no, I think we've exhausted 
Cliffy, he's had a good run. What? Pardon the pun. Yeah, I and, think... Uh, we should, can move on. We should, well, we just probably mentioned why finishing up on him as well. I don't think we mentioned it last time out. We did him a bit of a disservice. That that ultramarathon that he ran age 61 in his gumboots and his overalls when no one had heard of him, he won 10 grand, didn't he? And he, he, gave all the, he shared the prize money between all the other competitors because he said they all did equal work. So that's also just make one, of, one of the other things that's made him sort of extra legendary. And then sold his wedding to his 24-year-old wife for $250,000 to a new idea, which is even better. So you've uh, ever on the zeitgeist of what the young teens are interested in, uh, you've chosen uh, John Muir, um, who was, well, as you, a naturalist, author, environmental philosopher, glaciologist, and an early advocate of the preservation of wilderness in the United States of America, uh, around died in sort of 19... Uh, so well, that might be a question, but yeah, around the turn of the last century. So a bit in history books, but a very important man. Paul, first question. John had many uh, sort of nicknames or monikers. Can you give me one of those, please? Uh, he was known as the father of the national parks and was it John of the Mountains? That is correct. Yeah, classic first paragraph on Wiki, mate. I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name the prominent Australian conservation uh, organisation that he founded? Australian? Sorry, the prominent American conservation organisation he founded. Yeah, the Sierra Club, which obviously still going today. And those, they were one of the people kind of fingered in Cowspiracy, that documentary about plant-based diets. And they were one of the groups, along with Surf Rider, along with Greenpeace, I think Friends of the Earth as well. They were one of the people sort of accused of taking money from, from, big, from big agriculture, actually. And people that were sort of quiet on the role of animal agriculture in climate change. I'm digressing a little bit here. But yeah, the Sierra Club. Okay, uh, that's good. What do... This is to do with California-based question. And what do John Muir, Harvey Milk and Ronald Reagan all have in common? There's, there's a threesome you would never uh, put together in any other uh, podcast. Pass. They all have a day. The only three people that have days was John Muir Day, Harvey Milk Day, and the Ronald Reagan Day. What else has been named after um, John Muir? Well, there's Muir Woods in California. So I, I went there when I was about 10. It's when I first became interested in Muir. Right. The town itself. Okay. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that. it's a forest, a national forest up in Marin County. Yeah. Yeah. There's also uh, the Muir Glacier, uh, which he founded. In Alaska, yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah, that's right. Um, it, that was late on in his sort of career. He explored. I've actually got that book as well. That's right. Yeah, he went up to travel to British Columbia, the uh, Stikine River, Stikine. Pronounce that horribly. Uh, yeah, he recorded over three hundred uh, glaciers in, in his in his travels. Um, now, it's a two-part question. Last two questions. Probably, probably his greatest potential achievement uh, what would you say would be his probably greatest long-lasting uh, achievement that's, that's best known well I mean super relevant to some of the chat we've had on this part is, is Yosemite he was kind of instrumental in in getting Yosemite kind of earmarked as a national park or the national parks movement themselves with, with Roosevelt correct um, the Roosevelt actually came out to California and, and camped out, camped with him out under the stars. And 
And when did the U.S. Congress pass that bill establishing Yosemite National Park? Uh, oh God. In what in what year? Uh, 1890? Correct. Come on. Many people think it's the first national park, but there's claims for the Royal National Park in Australia as being before then. In Tasmania? Uh, no, right near Sydney. I, I... Yeah, but you know that... In Gary, you know? Yeah. Park. I think the first national park in the world was, was in Tasmania, wasn't it? No, I think there's one in... Um, Yugoslavia or Slovakia or something like that. Hey, listeners, get in touch. If you've got some national na- national park history chat, let us know. Wow, that's a great, a glorious victory for me, isn't it? Basically, Evans is fucking back on. Come on! Come on! Get in here, Go on! Get in there! Uh, yeah, great. Finished? Yeah, got, right? got that winning feeling back, Ben. Uh, yeah. Really freaking looking forward to hearing Archie Whitewater on the Empora pod. Get ready to have your tiny minds blown. Action sports on adventure world. Um, and Evans is back. The Empora podcast. All right, Ben, that was a great show. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I had an absolute ball. Paul, wow. I think I learned a lot. Oh, man. I learned about the world around us, but mainly about myself on this journey, this podcast oral journey, our oral journey. Um... Good. What's, what are we doing next time out? You're going to be down in, in Bali sort of consuming the next generation's sort of resources um, to sort of sun yourself in the tropics. You're going, to be, you're going to be down in Bali, I believe, down in Indonesia. Yeah, going to hit Bali. Going to, we'll go to your neck of the woods where you're sailing uh, in the English Channel. I'm going to be down in Zarout. Uh And then, yeah, off to Bali to cover the, some surfing, a lot of surf chat, talk, you know, hang out with my mates, basically, Paul. Um, you know, my well, just hang around my mates, I should say, down there at the Karamas in the in the surfing competition, and then potentially down to the Margaret River wine region. So, but yeah, plenty to plenty to chat about. I'm sure we'll catch up and uh, talk adventure, talk sports, talk talk all things sort of you know, what's important in this in this mad adventurous world we live in. And if you want to get in touch with the show, send us a tweet at Empora. You can drop us a line. The crew at Empora.com on email. Send the Empora Instagram a DM. Why don't you? Let us know where you're listening from. Let us know if you've got any accidents will happen, poo stories as well, because we know yeah, that. We, we left that out this week, didn't we, Paul? But I suppose it's always good to have a little break from the poo stories and then come back fresh and steamy uh, for the next next episode. Yeah, my, my hard drive was kind of getting pretty full with, as, as, obviously, as well as my own sort of private, sort of personal sort of material, like all, all the listener content as well, was getting a little bit a little bit awkward on there. So, but that'll be back next time out. I'm Paul Evans saying, enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. And he's Ben Mundy saying, get a dog up, yeah. As the sun sets through every Thank you.